this week, what is the illusion of choice? But first, I'm Quinn Emmett, and this is important, not important. Science for people who give a shit. Hit subscribe right now to get this newsletter and my conversations with the world's most impressive people every single week. You can find the email version and links to everything at importantnotimportant.com or write in your show notes. You're welcome. And now for today's big question. So skipping for just a moment over the entire does free will exist conversation, because as Oliver Berkman wrote in The Guardian, peer over the precipice of the free will debate for a while and you begin to appreciate how an already psychologically vulnerable person might be nudged into a breakdown. So, no thank you, not today, my Prozac has barely kicked in. Not that some level of self-awareness isn't great and useful, obviously, but that's one-on-one level stuff, like I don't keep cookies in the office for a reason. So, anyways, no, we are not doing free will today. But I do want to discuss how much more vulnerable you are than you think to the systems around us, and, plus, on the other hand, how we have more power than we think to dismantle them, to provide more choices not only for ourselves, but for more people. Earlier this year, I wrote a post called, What Do You Need? If you missed it, if you haven't listened, read, or watched it, shame on you. I'm kidding. Though it is worth reading the whole thing, and there's a great Wired post uh, just last week uh, by way of Google's antitrust lawsuit they really, really, really don't want you to know about that expounds on my original intro and thesis. So, my original intro to What Do You Need back in February 2023. In screenwriting, there is a well-honed idea that main characters should want one thing, but need something different, something that is often opposed or even opposite their most public desires. They are actually blind to what they need most for most of the movie or the show, and often purposely so, having shoved those feelings down just about as far as they can go. Now trust me when I say having a long, hard look at yourself isn't easy or comfortable, so this is very human. We empathize with these characters because, I mean, who amongst us, right? It's an imperfect character development mechanism, of course. The best characters aren't that simple, and none of us are either, right? But history is littered with memorable characters who reluctantly go through transformations, who finally walk away from what they want and go through hell to get what they needed all along. Letting us experience what it's like to have that long, hard look without actually having to, you know, do it. Web search, I know this is a pivot, was intended to give us what we need, but over time the utility has been hijacked to give us what we want. Let's talk about that. We need a real answer. But at this point, search most often just gives us what we want, self-affirmation. And if it's delivered by a paid advertisement that looks just like a real answer, well, that's even better. But for who? So that process, though, over and over, billions of times a day, leads to disinformation. Sometimes disinformation hurts one person. You buy a shitty bathroom scale. But as we'll see below, at scale... (laughs) Disinformation inevitably hurts many, many people and systems. Imagining that search could ever give us entirely objective answers all the time ignores the web's original sin. The web is only what we put into it, and we are fundamentally flawed. The internet is so fundamentally broken 
that we desperately want the next thing, these AI chatbots, to be everything all at once. But that's even more dangerous, because instead of your question returning a list of links ranked by Google, most of which are now paid ads, or a newsfeed of extreme views from friends and family on Facebook, chatbots are basically an incredibly, extremely convincing version of both of those right now. It's incredibly confident, but often very wrong. But we can't tell the difference, and I'm not sure we want to. And I wrote, I'm not going to spend today's essay assessing the technological capabilities of search or new large language models, because that assessment would be old news almost immediately, and that was February, and now we are in, what are we in, October? And that's true. But I finished, what I do want to do is try to force us to confront our wants and needs, to confront our expectations, born of who we are, a construct that has remained the same for eons and underpins every single system we've ever built. Okay, so now from Wired just this week. Recently, a startling piece of information came to light in the ongoing antitrust case against Google. During one employee's testimony, a key exhibit momentarily flashed on a projector. In the mostly closed trial, spectators like myself, the author of the piece, have only a few seconds to scribble down the contents of exhibits shown during public questioning. Thus far, witnesses had dropped breadcrumbs hinting at the extent of Google's drive to boost profits, a highly confidential effort called Project Mercury, urgent missives to shake the sofa cushions to generate more advertising revenue on search engine results, distressed emails about the sustained decline in the ad-triggering searches that generate most of Google's money, and recollections of how the executive team has long insisted that obscene corporate profit equals consumer good. Now, the projector screen showed an internal Google slide about changes to its search algorithm. This on-screen Google slide had to do with a semantic matching overhaul to the SERP algorithm, which is the search engine results page algorithm. When you enter a query, you might expect a search engine to incorporate synonyms into the algorithm, as well as text phrase pairings and natural language processing. But this overhaul went further actually altering queries to generate more commercial results. She wrote, Google likely alters queries billions of times a day in trillions of different variations. Here's how it works. Say you search for children's clothing. Google converts it, without your knowledge, to a search for Nikolai brand kidswear, making a behind-the-scenes substitution of your actual query with a different query that just happens to generate more money for the company and will generate results you weren't actually searching for at all. It's not possible for you to opt out of the substitution. If you don't get the results you want, and you try to refine your query, you are wasting your time. This is a twisted shopping mall you can't escape. So that's where that ends. And now some of you might be saying, what the fuck? But some of you might say, look, man, there's a difference between disinformation at scale and advertising. And I'd question that because, well, they're on trial for being a monopoly for a reason. Is disinformation not false information that is intended to mislead? Are they not changing your searches without telling you to extract more money, but still make you think they're fulfilling your original query? Well, there's more. After that post, Charlie Warzel of The Atlantic followed up with Google, who said the allegation was flat-out false. But the Wired author, former FTC attorney and former VP at DuckDuckGo, Megan Gray, stood by her story, even though Wired eventually took it down. Per Charlie, 
Google may not be altering billions of queries in the manner that the Wired story suggests, but the company is constantly tweaking and ranking what we see, while injecting ads and proprietary widgets into our feed, thereby altering our experience. It continues, perhaps the specific of Gray's essay were off. We have learned, for instance, how company executives considered adjusting Google's products to lead to more monetizable queries. And just last week, the Federal Trade Commission filed a lawsuit against Amazon, too, alleging anti-competitive practices. Amazon has called the suit misguided. Charlie concludes, We have the sense that we're being manipulated because, well, we are. It's a bit like feeling vaguely sick, going to the doctor, and receiving a blood test result confirming that, yes, the malaise you experienced is actually an iron deficiency. It is the catharsis of, at long last, receiving a diagnosis. So, anyways, to round it out, here's the intro to a recent Ezra Klein post, mostly about productivity, but I think you'll get the point. He said, Imagine I told you in 1970 that I was going to invent a wondrous tool. This new tool would make it possible for anyone with access, and most of humanity would have access, to quickly communicate and collaborate with anyone else. Hey everyone, it's Quinn, your host and the founder of Important Not Important. I'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about the INI or any, whatever we're calling it these days, membership and community. It's a gathering place really for our most dedicated shit givers, a place to connect and learn from one another and to have access to me outside of the newsletter and this podcast. We started it last year, and it's grown to hundreds of shit givers from all kinds, from around the globe. I'm talking about teachers and investors, students, electricians, journalists, artists, scientists, and policymakers, and, and more. Members get exclusive access to our daily news homepage, which is very cool, and to much more top-of-mind weekly articles, research and tools that you can use and to stay ahead of the game, member-sourced action steps, twice-monthly book and culture recommendations that have nothing to do with the end of the world, virtual events, and of course, the membership Slack channel. Look, so many people come to us asking, what can I do? And we think we do a pretty good job of answering that question and providing context for the answer. But the best answers and the best perspective really come from the community, a wide-ranging community, and we would love for you to be a part of it, to feel supported yourself, and to contribute to discussions and actions alike. And of course, by becoming a member, you're directly supporting our work here and ensuring that we get to keep doing it. So if you'd like to learn more, head to importantnotimportant.com. And if you're already a reader, you can just hit the upgrade button at the top. If you're not, Go ahead and subscribe for free, and you'll see the option to become a member at whatever level works best for you. And as always, you can always find the link to become a member right in your show notes. So thanks for listening, and as always, thanks for giving a shit. Back to the show. It would store nearly the sum of human knowledge and thought up to that point, and all of it would be searchable, sortable, and portable. Text could be instantly translated from one language to another. News would be immediately available from all over the world. And it would no longer take a scientist to download a journal paper from 15 years ago than to flip to an entry in the latest issue. What would you have predicted this leap 
and information and communication and collaboration would do for humanity? How much faster would our economies grow? Now imagine I told you that I was going to invent a sinister tool. Perhaps while telling you this, I would cackle. As people used it, their attention spans would degrade, as the tool would constantly shift their focus, weakening their powers of concentration and contemplation. This tool would show people whatever it is they found most difficult to look away from, which would often be what was most threatening about the world. From the worst ideas of their political opponents to the deep injustices of their society, it would fit in their pockets and glow on their nightstands and never truly be quiet. There would never be a moment when people could be free of the sense that the pile of messages and warnings and tasks needed to be checked. What would you have thought this engine of distraction, division, and cognitive fracture would do to humanity? Okay, so again, the bulk of Ezra's essay was about productivity, AI, and distraction, but the point is, we were sold one thing, and we're getting something entirely different. It's what always happens, because we're programmed to keep doing this, and it's what happens when we're distracted. It's been this way since the beginning of time, really. We often have the illusion of choice, when in reality, we don't. Our one harmless search of nearly the sum of human knowledge and thought up to that point, searchable, sortable, and portable, is an infinitesimal data point that was never going to be answered the way we intended before we ever searched for it. So this is actually a little bit like free will. In reality, what is reality? There's no free will here, right? Anyways, web search is one thing, but having an illusion of choice can, but not always, be much more dangerous offline. On the other hand, this never-ending barrage of miss or dis or complete lack of information, or a Sisyphean stack of paperwork to keep you from getting answers or snap benefits or citizenship when it always seems so close, eventually that whole process can really make you feel like, I don't have a choice here. So which is it? Do we think we have more choice than we actually do? Or do we believe we have no choice, when in fact there are opportunities to see what's behind door number three? The answer to both is, yeah, you're told to eat healthy foods, but you can't access them or afford them. We don't really grow them anyways, and also we subsidize the unhealthy ones. The plants we do grow and subsidize use enormous amounts of water, and it all goes to cows to be slaughtered for smash burgers, which impacts land use and drives up methane and cardiovascular issues. You're told to ride your bike or walk, but there's no sidewalks or protected bike lanes in your town, and trucks are only getting fucking bigger. You're encouraged to vote, but every state has their own rules, and the ones with the easiest ways to vote have the most civil rights already. So there's less of a desperate need to turn out, and they generally have better voting rights too. It's a flywheel. But in red states, it's still a flywheel. They'll do anything to make it harder for you to vote, so you don't, or you can't, and your life doesn't get better. You're told that owning a house builds wealth, but four million houses don't exist where they should, and the rest are unaffordable and uninsurable, or next to a fossil fuel refinery. You're told we have the best healthcare in the world, but it's also unaffordable, and it's actually not the best. Not in the reactionary sense, and certainly not proactively or around wellness. If it was, our life expectancy wouldn't be on a downward trend. If it was, as famed urban planner Jeff Speck puts it, it wouldn't be the case that a lot of poor Americans who don't have cars, who are forced to walk and bike, are now living in the landscape that was designed 
the presumption that no one would ever walk or bike. Meanwhile, everyone who exclusively drives is on heart medication. You're told we need to have more babies, but they're unaffordable, too. And sometimes you don't want or can't have a baby for literally whatever reason, but in many states, now you have to. Again, reminder ad nauseum, we have the illusion of choice because of other choices we've made in the past or continue to make. It doesn't have to be this way. Often our Byzantine systems make us think we have no choice in the matter, and we actually do. They just don't want you to know that, much less take action on it. It's not true for everyone and not every situation, but the point remains. We can undo most of this bullshit and build something drastically better. Reputable sources of information and action, hello, can expand your horizons and unlock choices you didn't know you had, and new ones for people who've never had any. We can subsidize healthier foods for us and the soil, and for small, black, brown, and indigenous farmers, too. We can make a standard for actually protected bike lanes. We can make a state like Alabama, actually make them, use voting maps that aren't props from watchmen. We can educate, specifically train, and hire millions more rural blue-collar workers so they can fix or build shit with their hands, improving their own incomes, health spans, and local economies. They shouldn't have to go to the big city or to college if they want to survive. But that appears to be exactly the problem. From Dylan Matthews in Vox. While it's true that rich people in America live significantly longer than poor people, there's much less true in New York City. It's not true in California as a whole. Heavily urban areas with high education levels see a modest relationship between income and death rates. More rural, less educated areas, by contrast, see a very strong relationship between the two. Areas with smaller mortality gaps tend to be places, the researchers find, with lower rates of smoking and higher rates of exercise. Which makes sense when you consider that the variation in death rates between cities is driven not by factors like car crashes or suicide, but conditions like heart disease and cancer, which are themselves driven in part by lifestyle conditions. The middle-aged whites without high school diplomas, Novosad and colleagues' study from the original study, we'll link to it, have, however, seen their death rates from cancer, heart disease, and respiratory disease increase, while more educated Americans have seen death rates from these diseases fall. A new investigation from the Washington Post similarly concludes that chronic conditions like heart disease and cancer are driving more of the life expectancy divide between rich and poor counties than factors like opioid overdoses or homicides. Yeah, so it turns out some combination of healthy food, trade schools, seatbelts, free community college, Medicaid or Medicare, or literally anything with annual screenings and affordable medication for all, affordable housing and walkable neighborhoods, all that shit can save a ton of lives. And doing all of this will, in turn, actually make college degrees less valuable because good jobs and not poverty won't require one in a lifetime of debt anymore. And after that, we can encourage them to unionize. Now, increased support for and participation in organized labor, which, as you may have heard, is at both its lowest participation levels ever and having quite the hot labor summer-fall, can level the playing field, like UPS and the WGA and auto workers and teachers have fought for time and time again. Now, these unions need to grow themselves to actually recruit and grow their own ranks and show other workers how to do it. 
Because when more people, especially young white males in red states, can at least get a high school degree and then get work in more industries that don't require a college degree and then can unionize, they take back and build some equity and equality, driving down education deficits, increasing civic participation, driving down cardiovascular disease, and these so-called deaths of despair, which is actually just overdoses. We can pass the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and others to make voting easier, which makes electing people who give a shit easier. People who are genuinely trying to make more people's lives better. We can pass mandatory parental leave and sick leave. We can pass the child tax credit again. We can raise the minimum wage and pass Medicaid for children everywhere. We can trash racist zoning standards to build far more affordable electric homes. We can build on the IRA which and make more drug makers negotiate with Medicare to lower drug prices. Drugs will need less of when there's less cheap, shitty food and more houses people can walk and bike to. We can attend en masse exceptionally white public utility commission meetings and tell them to stop using our fucking money to lobby against solar power and transmission lines. As my friend David Roberts at Volt fumed, there are many features of U.S. public life that I believe, perhaps naively, would be the subject of a great deal more anger were they better understood. He continues, and you should listen to the whole thing, it will enrage you. He said, Utilities are fighting against the clean energy transition using your money. They use ratepayer money from captive customers over whom they are granted a monopoly to fund their lobbying. They have effectively conscripted their customers, who have no choice where to get their power and gas, into an involuntary small donor army working against the public interest. Anyways, we also don't actually have to shut down nearly perfectly safe nuclear plants that have been providing renewable power this entire time. We can pop on over to our city council meeting and shake a stack of biobot pamphlets at them, insisting we use what's available to us to see the flu and COVID and other shit, literally, coming weeks before tests do. You have choices. Your kids, your students, teachers, and grandkids don't actually have to get sick every fall. The federal government has thrown tens of billions of dollars at schools and offices to retrofit themselves for cleaner air. Hardly anyone's used it. But, and I can't be clear enough about this, if you don't show up at every school board meeting until they actually start doing the work, it's not going to happen. No one else is going to do the work except us. If you don't show up at a city council meeting and public utility commission meetings and demand they use Solar App Plus, which is free and amazing, it's going to continue to be extremely slow and expensive to get solar installed anywhere near you. On a house, on a school, in a field, whatever. So maybe this is a lesson on control what you can control. And maybe it's another screed about how gatekeeping between individual and systemic actions is bullshit. I empathize with either feeling. Feeling helpless, or feeling like you're always so close but so far. Like a toddler who can, can't quite steer the spoon of pureed peas all the way into their mouth. Getting clarity on which is which is step number one. Figuring out what the hell you can do about it starts, well, here. Here's your relevant action steps for the week. Number one, donate to the GreenLink Institute to help communities of color build wealth and live in healthier, climate-resilient communities. Number two, volunteer with People for Bikes to make biking better for everyone by improving infrastructure, advancing policy, and removing barriers to participation. Number three, 
Get educated about funding opportunities in your state to hire more apprentices in your trade or receive tuition support to enter a trade. Number four, get heard about increasing access to EV charging infrastructure and have your city sandbox a pilot with its electric company. Lastly, invest your money through an eco-friendly bank using Mighty Deposit's bank comparison tool. That's it for this week. If you've got feedback, questions, uh, opinions, please always send them along. Send them to questions at importantnotimportant.com. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening, and thanks for giving a shit. Mm-hmm.